Hello, welcome to You Don't Know Mojack. My name's Ryan. My name's Brant. And this episode, we're discussing SST-139, the Minuteman compilation post-merch volume two. We're still in Pedro this week. We had post-merch volume one last week, post-merch volume two this week. Just loving the Minutemen all over again. Even if we've done these songs, it is still... Uh, just awesome to listen to them again um, and never get tired of it. And Brent, we've got the master of mastering, <laughs> the man with the golden ear on the show tonight. Yeah, John Golden's the guest tonight. Really great having John on. Uh, it's not super Minutemen related, although the Minutemen get some, some mentions in it. But, you know, I've been wanting to have John on for a while and I figured, well, we've discussed these tracks already. So this would be a good one to drop it in. Yeah, he's like the missing link, too, for not just a ton of SST recordings, because we've mentioned his name, you know, every second episode. But he's the missing link for an incredible amount of music history. And the interview is, I mean, it's truly fascinating, truly fascinating. I I was just so into it. And uh, what a hella swella fella again. He's a living legend, man. Yeah. He's a living legend. That is for darn sure. Yep. Well, what do you think, Mr. Mboogaloo? Do you have any spiels for us before we get to John and the history lessons? Yeah, I've got a zillion spiels. Oh, man. Okay, first, another great batch of releases on Sonic Youth's Bandcamp page worth checking out. The Spinhead Sessions are now up there. That's the 1986 uh, recording sessions they did with Phil Newman from Pain and Willie at his Spinhead Studios. For a movie soundtrack, live in Denver, 1986, a killer set recorded on the Evil tour. Some great stuff we're checking out. Cool. Steve must be busy. He must be. Okay, Ryan, I have the I section of my phone for my get this shit off my phone segment. Okay, so this one is I and I can't believe I don't know that band already. Okay. People must think I don't know anything about music after going through this because you're every time you mention a band, you're like, "Do you know that band?" And I, I know I've only known like ten percent of them so far. Oh, as if you couldn't do the same thing to me. Yeah, potentially, but I don't have any music on my phone, so go for it. Okay, it's a long one, so I apologize. Starting with something on the SS tree, I love you, live. Speaking of Phil Newman. 1989, Medusa Records, which was the metal subsidiary of Restless Enigma. This is the band Phil Newman joined after Painted Willie split up. The rest of the band had moved to L.A. from Florida, and if I'm remembering right, they were recording at Spinhead, and that's how they connected with Phil. I believe you've heard this before, Ryan. I think we've talked about this before. I Love You? Yeah. Yeah, maybe. It doesn't ring a bell. It's a live EP. It doesn't say where it was taped. Apparently, like a heated bidding war happened after this, and Phil left, and they signed to Geffen Records. Great proto-grunge, kind of like Green River or something like that. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I know what this is. They put out um, an EP and a full length, didn't they? A couple full lengths, I think. Yeah, 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 yeah. I know what this is. Yep, this is good. Okay, I got that Iggy Pop, The Bowie Years box set oh that sounds cool yeah uh save your money 
Oh, really? Well, you already have The Idiot, Lust for Life, and probably TVI Live, I'm assuming. Yes. There's a disc of alternate mixes, which is not really worth the 80 bucks for the box set, and three okay-ish sound quality shows, uh, one of which has already been released on on the box set Where the Faces Shine, Volume 1. And it's the same set, all three shows, too. That's always a bit of a letdown. <laughs> yeah, it's not It's not the best. Okay, another one on the SS Tree, Ryan. You gifted this to me. It's the Incest Cattle Tape. Oh, yeah, right. That's good, hey? Yeah, cool cassette EP released by Craig Abera on his Water Under the Bridge label. Interesting history behind the band. Doug Carrion from The Descendants and Dag Nasty, uh, etc. plays bass. Produced by Don Bowles of The Germs. Engineered by Paul B. Cutler of the Dream Syndicate and 45 Grave, etc. It They kind of remind me vocally of a band we talked about a few weeks ago, The Crucifix. Oh, yeah. Okay, Ryan, here's one that I'm curious if you were a fan of or are still a fan of. This might be a Ryan's 13-year-old Ryan jam. <laughs> <laughs> Instead, What We Believe. Oh, hell yeah. Yeah. I still have that. Okay. Totally missed that band. Was not my thing. Like that kind of, I don't know. Straight edge hardcore? Yeah. Uh, but I really like it, man. Oh, yeah. Yep. Uh, itch. Here's another one of Ryan's jams Ooh. for sure. Pull, pull the wool? Pull the wool, yeah. Yes. Another great No Means No associated band. Andy, John, and Rob from No Means No all played at various times with this band. Proggy, No Means No-esque jazz punk. Good stuff. Their, the other album, Dying to Be Jesus, is even better, okay. in my opinion. I don't Both know that one. Are, yeah, D- Dying to Be Jesus, the Itch album. I've got, <laughs> I've actually got that one on vinyl. Like I, I love it so much. Ryan's hardcore. But you know what I came on this album is that track Swamp Water that's on Johnny Hansen Puck Rock Volume 1. Oh, yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> I was grooving so hard when that came on. Oh, man. yeah. yeah. Heavy, heavy keyboards. Yeah. Okay, here's another one you hit me to, Ryan, that I really like. Indian Summer, Cherry Smash. Oh, yeah. yeah. Four-song session recorded in the late 80s with Jay Robbins plus three-song demo. It's got a bit of a Revolution Summer vibe to it. I think they were a DC area band. Oh, yeah. I've been rocking the DC stuff lately. I basically listened to the Minutemen and Kerosene 454 all week. That's it. Nice. Hey, I checked out that Bells of record that you mentioned. Good, hey? Too. Yeah, it's pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. I can't wait to Alec Mackay seemed to play a bit part in that band, though, as far as I could tell. Very briefly as they started, and then he left. Yeah. yeah. Okay, let's see. Here's a band I'm curious if you know, Ryan. If I had a hi-fi. Oh, yeah, for yeah. sure. So I listened to the Not A Surf Plus 3 EP. Milwaukee noise rock band still going they put out one last year good stuff heavy noisy inventive really good Ian Dury and the Blockheads laughter the only one I really know well anyways is New Boots and Panties but I want to dig deeper into Ian Dury's discography and I figured this would be a, a good one to try since Wilco Johnson from Dr. Feelgood plays guitar on it are you a fan? I've tried a few times, and I only know that New Boots record, really. Yeah. 
and not even that well. I've tried a bit, and I don't know, hasn't sunk in. Okay. Izzy Stradlin, 117 degrees. For my money, the most consistently good albums from a Guns N' Roses member came from Izzy. Uh, but he's overdue for another one, so hopefully soon. And Did that, he have, is he the guy that had the Juju Hounds? Is that yeah. that guy? Yeah, yeah. that yeah. was just one record, though. Okay. But I mean, that's, that's, how, that's how much I know. That's good. St- have you heard that record, man? No. Oh, it's awesome. Like I don't like Guns N' Roses, man. This doesn't sound like Guns N' Roses. It sounds like the Stones or the Faces or something, or the Black Crows. Mm. It's good. My buddy Graham loves him to death, too. Maybe I maybe I got it. We got a double recommend here. I guess I'll have to check out Izzy then. Yeah. What about Dizzy? Is Izzy good, but Dizzy is not from Guns N' Roses? That's right. Yeah. Okay. Okay, here's a perfect record, Ryan. Nice. Ian Hunter's Dirty Laundry. I love Mott the Hoople and most of Ian's solo stuff. He's still cranking out great albums. This one, though, is a standout for me because all of the members of that band, the Crybabies, play on it. Oh, no way. As well as they co-write many of the songs. Huh. And, I mean, these are dudes from The Boys as well, right? Like Casino Steel, Daryl Bath, Honest John Plain. Glenn Matlock is the bass player on this record. Oh, no way. Uh, Steve Ritchie from Die Totenhosen is the drummer. It's awesome. Every song's just really great. Okay. What that, era is that? Like uh, 80s, late, 90s? Late 80s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That yeah. sounds about right. Okay, the band Idols, kind of the leaders of the British post-punk boom that's happening right now, they've released three great digital singles that are worth checking out. Another new release on that great Nor- Norwegian label, Rune Gramophone. They're called I Like to Sleep, which is apparently taken from a Thelonious Monk quote. It's vibraphone, baritone guitar, and drums. It's pretty good. And Motorcycle announced a new album coming out August 28th, too. Also on Rune Gramophone. And, Ryan, our podcast pal Jeff Shrek sent us a podcast shout-out related to Rune Gramophone. He He recommended this podcast called burning ambulance okay it's it's good man this guy phil freeman who hosts it he really knows his shit i need to check out more but i think if i heard him right he references a print mag that he used to have under the same name he has a whole episode on rune gramophone he actually went to norway for their 20th anniversary i think it was show it's a great primer for the label he interviews motor psycho hedvig molestad a bunch of artists on the label and play some tracks too and on another episode he has an excellent interview with melvin gibbs ah cool yeah that's an sst connection yeah remote but it's there yep okay ryan iron man the passage can you guess what the band iron man sounds like iron maiden no wait black sabbath (laughs) (laughs) they sound exactly like black sabbath Are they acting like Black Sabbath? (laughs) Did you get it? I get it, yeah. Well, I don't know, but Tony Iommi is definitely Alfred Morris III, the main guys. Definitely his god. His god, nice. Nice comeback. (laughs) (laughs) They were from Baltimore. Alfred unfortunately passed away in 2018. Very Vitus-esque, actually, but really good. I did the album The Passage. It's a good one. 
You know what record I cannot track down for less than like 25 bucks is Jug Full of Sun. You know, speaking of Vitus, um, I, I want that hmm. record, but it's too expensive. Because of those Shine tracks, you mean? Well, Shine is my gateway drug. I want right. to check out I want to check out Jug Full of Sun, but it's like way too expensive everywhere. Even on CD? Yeah. Hmm. Crazy. Okay, Ian Blurton, Signals Through the Flames. He's a well-known in Canada, a well-known indie musician. He played in bands like Come On, Public Animal, Change of Heart, most notably. It's really good. It came out last year. Kind of, I kind of missed it. Riffy Rock with touches of kind of some 80s metal and hard rock. Reminds me of this band I really like called High Spirits. It's good. Was he, like he was Blurtonia as well, right? He was, yeah. Yeah, 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 right. Okay. That's a good record, man. Sing, signals Through the Flames. You should check it out. Okay, here's one that you recommended to me, Ryan. The It Men. Greatest It's. Told you. Good Rockin' Garage from Cleveland. Good recommend. Yep. Yep. I oh. only recommend it if it's good, man. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> okay, here's another Ryan one. Speaking of Discord, I did the Ignition Complete Services. Ooh. Yeah, I maybe heard the End on End dudes mention this one. Great Discord band. Oh, yeah. I love the bass playing on, on the Ignition records in particular. Yeah. Great uh, melodic post-hardcore just killer and it never gets old every time it comes around uh, when i hit the i section of my ipods love the ignition okay here's a revelation band ryan i don't know where this era of revelation sits with like the fans of that label but this band's called into another and i oh, yeah. really dug it yep i bet you the hardcore purists hated this band it's kind of proggy metal mm -hmm. but it's good yeah, Revelation got pretty metal for a while there. Okay, speaking of metal, Inquisition. Normally I don't jam too much black metal in the summertime, it's for winter, but I love this band. <laughs> They're my favorite black metal band. Obscure Versus for the Multiverse is the one I listen to. They're a U.S. duo, killer production, uh, great lyrics and vocals and riffs. You're a seasonal listener, are you? I am, yep. Okay. Iron Age, The Sleeping Eye. I missed this one first time around. It was on that TP Records label. It was reissued last year on probably the best metal label on the planet right now, 20 bucks spin. It's really good. Uh, the, the main guy, Jason Tarpey, went on to the band Eternal Champion, whose killer record, The Armor of Ire, I mentioned in the E section. And this Iron Age record's really good. Reminds me of the band High on Fire a little bit. Irreversible Entanglements. Who sent you brand new free jazz with some cool poetry over top? Kind of not unlike Socktite, who we mentioned last week. It's cool stuff. Mm. Neat. Okay, speaking of no means no, Ryan, Invasives. Another right. killer no means no associated band from Vancouver. Proggy punk rock with amazing vocals. I did Robot Stink. If anybody wants to check them out, you can find all their stuff on their Bandcamp page. They're an awesome band. Still going too. Okay, another band on the Germany on Germany's Hellhound record label, Internal Void. You should check them out, Ryan. You might like them if you like the the Obsessed. Standing on the Sun. 
Vocalist J.D. Williams sounds a lot like Wino. It's great, doomy rock. It's good stuff. In Solitude, Sister. It was their last one, came out in 2013 before they split up. Great Swedish, merciful fate, ghost type of band. Really good stuff. Okay, almost done, Ryan. Inger Lore, Transcendental Medication. She was the vocalist for the Nymphs, who we talked about in episode 114 with Sam Merrick on our Leaving Trains Fuck episode. This record came out on Triple X Records. I think it might be her only solo album, and it's a good, solid rock record. Isotope, their self-titled record from 1974. Guitar-driven British fusion. Gary Boyle is the guitar player, and it's really good stuff. Yep, love me some Isotope. What about this band, Ryan? Icky Joey, CZ Records. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I did the record Poo. Poo. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) It's members of the Throne Ups, You Men, Love Battery. Here's one of your faves, Ryan. I did that, well, I'm assuming you like this record because you're a big Westerberg fan. That I Don't Cares record from 2016, Wild Stab, Paul Westerberg and Julianne Hatfield. What a great record. Yeah, some people really, really, really love it. Like they were just drooling all over it. I'm kind of meh. It it's like it's good, but I don't know. It it kind of was a little watered down for me, to be completely honest. Hmm, I like it. I think that's probably the last thing he did. <sighs> Recorded and released. I think you're right. Yep. Yeah. Okay, Ryan. The last band here is one you mentioned a couple weeks ago during my get this shit off my phone segment. The Inbred, not. The Inbreds, the great Canadian band from Kingston, Ontario. I'm talking the cool hardcore band from Morgantown, West Virginia on Toxic Shock. Yes. I did the Alternative Tentacles comp, Legacy of Fertility. I think it has everything on it. I was reading up on them a little bit. Their vocalist, Art Reco, passed away in February of this year. Yeah, those records are cool, and there's some far out stuff on them too that uh really makes them different than just your straight ahead kind of hardcore band from back then oh for sure yep yeah they could have fit on sst oh yeah for sure i'm not sure that that at comp has everything Hmm. because i think there's you know if there isn't three or four full lengths there's at least some singles too Gosh, I don't know. It's been a long time since I've I've done a deep dive. Time to check them out again. Yeah. So you put the inbred under I. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> you don't put the bands under T. It's not the. It's T H apostrophe. Same thing. No, it's not, man. Okay. No. Well, where do you put Los Lobos? Under L O S. I don't know about that. <laughs> Well, you file people alphabetically by their first name, so it's case closed, man. I know the right way to do it. <laughs> okay. What do you have? That's it? You said you had a ton of spiels. It was just a lot of I's? Just a lot of I and I need to get these records? <laughs> okay, well, listen, I want to get to uh, John here, so just some micro spiels, okay? Okay. Here's a recommend for you. A band called Shark, question mark. Um, in fact, it's probably pronounced Shark. And uh, it's a band on Old Flame 
records. Um, Brooklyn, New York. I I caught a couple of their. Uh, well, I think they're one's an LP, one's a twelve inch. Reminds me, uh, kind of garagey, post. I don't know, post college rock. I don't know what you would call it. Kind of reminds me of a bit of, like. Kind of reminds me of a cross between Parquet Courts and Royal Headache, oh, yeah. but uh, with some cool, catchy, hooky songs. So uh, the record I listened to was Savior, and the other one was Becky and Debbie by Shark? Question mark. I like them. I think you should check them out. I will. Um, a couple of weeks ago, I mentioned I got a Fratry Records um, order in the mail. And I bought I bought a bunch of records by this band called Knife the Symphony. And I know we're not on the K's yet, and I don't know whether you've checked them out, Brant. But something I didn't realize when I uh, mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, I wanted to let you know on the topic of SST covers, Knife the Symphony on their split with LKN, twelve inch split. Knife the Symphony do the song on your knees one of our favorite firehose songs and it's awesome it's heavy it's heavy you would love it right on so check that out i've mentioned this uh label a couple of times before because i dig so much that they put out comedy minus one records there is this uh band camp friday that is going on these days to give as many as many bands as much help as you can and um if you're if you're buying some tracks on a Friday, I guess um, Bandcamp is kind of waiving their fees or whatever, so it can go to the artists. But this past Friday, three things um, put out by Comedy Minus One. I was just digging. Um, they put out a they put out an Edsel like a long lost Edsel EP, which uh, was very cool. And Edsel, of course, was kind of like a you know. A band from way back when that uh, put out some great records, um, but Sorab Habib Habibian Habibian, the guy in uh, Obits and Savak, he was uh, in Edsel as well, and that was put out. So that was very very cool to get a couple new Edsel songs. Um, they were recorded in 2001, and they just finished them. Mm. Um, the other thing they put out was a tribute to Carl Hendricks by kind of like spitting and uh carl Hendricks, i i just i've always dug his stuff um that record one of his later records i still crank all the time the adult section carl Hendricks, awesome kind of like spitting did uh basically a tribute to carl Hendricks, also on comedy minus one out uh, this past band camp friday it was awesome wait and wait carl Hendricks releases stuff under his own name or he was in a band well, Carl Hendricks passed away right. um, a, a while back here, and he used to he put out a ton of records. Carl Hendricks or the Carl Hendricks Trio, oh. basically like um, just uh, I don't know, like kind of uh, power pop, punk, guitar rock, but just catchy, catchy pop punk stuff. Um, but that's like not giving it enough credit. Carl wrote some just incredible songs, very, very guitar driven heaviness, um, but but melodic okay. and uh, kind of like spitting put out a tribute release to him that uh, I 
I dug it. I actually bought it. Um, it, there's no physical copy, but I actually bought it just because I like all all of the Carl stuff, and this money goes to uh, Carl's wife and his kids. So, yeah. um, and then the other thing that Comedy Minus One is doing is putting out all these live silkworm performances, and I actually bought <laughs> it. It's not they're not on hard copy, but I bought uh, a couple of these live shows because um, I I want more silkworm, and Bottomless Pit isn't putting out anything anymore. And uh, I did get those Mint Mile records, which are deadly. Everyone should just go to Comedy Minus One and buy stuff on Fridays there, basically. But uh, they put out some great stuff this past Friday. Also, finally, um, you may have seen this, but this is this is another one of the bands that uh, I've been a big fan of for a while. Uh, Vern from Unwound passed away this last week. And he was a, a key player in the Olympia, Washington scene. He was in Witchy Poo, Fits of Depression, and all those great unwound records on Kill Rock Stars were released in those Numero box sets. And it's a great reminder to go check out Unwound because uh, those records don't get old either. Like they're they're really really good records. Noisy, post punk, post hardcore, um, great stuff from that Olympia scene for sure. Um, let me see here. I think that's all I wanted to mention. There's one other thing I wanted to mention, but I'm going to save it to next week. Okay. Teaser. Okay. Teaser, man. That's it. Nano spiels. Cool, man. Do you want to get into this Minuteman record? Let's do it. History lesson, part one. All right. So last week we had Post Merge, volume one, which had the punchline and what makes man start fires. And we were just digging it. And I was just digging post Merch Volume 2, which has two EPs on it, Buzzer Howl, Under the Influence of Heat, and Project Mersh. But the thing that struck me about these records is, unlike the punchline or what makes a man, if I were to recommend to someone, like, listen to these records to get a taste of the Minutemen and get into the Minutemen, Buzzer Howl or Project Mersh are not probably the top records that i would recommend you know what I, you know what i mean no i'm the opposite i i have i was gonna say like i and i'm sure i'm the opposite of most minutemen fans but for me i i put this one ahead of volume one and volume three the, no way for me yeah i do and i really yeah i just this and it's probably a nostalgia thing more than anything so you were talking last week about you know, how essential these comps were and stuff for yeah. a lot of us to get the, these songs. This was the one for me. It was, no way. it was this one and double nickels were my, my Minutemen jams. And I don't even really think of until, unless I'm really paying attention, it, it's interesting how these songs work together. Like some of the songs like the product and little man with a gun on his hand in his hand, I don't really consider them separate from project Mersh, even though they're not on that record yeah that's interesting i mean listen there are good songs on here some of my favorite of all time like take our test and tour spiel some of my favorite minimum songs of all time but when i'm just thinking like what would i recommend someone as a first listen i don't know these these two are not the ones that come to mind but i totally take your point that's the point i made last week that 
these these comps are super important for that very reason and you're right when you get a comp like this and you play it start to finish over and over it's it's not like it's two 12 inch eps it's it's one album right yeah no when i first got these i didn't know jack shit about the minutemen's history this was pre-internet you know so like i didn't know there's no liner notes really so i didn't know like what came out when i didn't know the history i didn't know the chrono chronological order of things you know what i mean yeah so yeah yeah no i got you well that's that's interesting so we'll we'll uh i don't recall discussing it that way when we went through it the first time so that's cool um well i mean we're in 1983 now with buzzer howell starting off the record we went through that one on episode SST 16 and there's there's lots of great info on that episode so go back and check that out this is the one that they recorded for 50 bucks <laughs> because the first three tracks were produced by Ethan James and Ethan James of course ran the Radio Tokyo studio also played keys for Blue Cheer and he basically said to the Minutemen give me a song for my compilation radio tokyo tapes and then you can record another song for free and what the minutemen did was they basically took three songs and crammed them together and that was their free song quote unquote that they got from uh, ethan james the radio tokyo tapes has the minutemen song on it i felt like a gringo different version much slower version it's a it's a cool comp to check out too, of course, because it has the last, the Long Riders, um, 100 Flowers, Worm. Um, it has a ton of bands from back then in that scene. The long, yeah, the Bangles brand are on mm -hmm. there. It it also has that cool uh, cover art of that woman eating like a plate of quarter inch tape like spaghetti, but uh, but then on the back of the wall there are those singles that are pinned up like a leaving trains single a hundred flower single a the bangs single a last single it's um it's great eye candy and a great compilation as well now those three tracks were recorded on january the third and the rest of the tracks were produced by spot on january 30th and may the 23rd cut live essentially to two track tape at total access watt was using steve mcdonald's svt amp uh, we've got some crane um, guesting on trumpet on the product he played some recorder on the dreams are free track um, chuck dukowski provided some words for little man with a gun in his hand and this is the the 12 inch as well that has that fantastic joe biza artwork on the cover the the ink and pen drawing of mike and d boone just uh yelling at each other and arguing like they always did apparently um now this these tracks are also on the the my my first bells comp which we uh, covered on sst 32 um, and this is also the last basically the last record that watt is using a pick on seriously he uh, used a pick on one maybe two tracks again on double nickels but this is this is kind of it so it's interesting for you to make that comment on how they kind of blend together because of course watt's got a different feel going on on the project merch 12 inch in a minute here 
after Buzzer Howell on our way to the post um, the Project Mersh EP. They record in 1984 the Polix, Politics of Time LP on New Alliance, which we'll get to on Post Mersh Volume 3 at SST 165. It's also put out by SST on its own as SST 277. So we're going to get the politics of time twice on the show. Also in 1984, of course, the monumental double nickels on the dime record, SST 28, which um, John will talk about in a minute here on the interview and about when Watt came back to uh, remaster it for the CD version, which is interesting to hear about. Yeah, he calls it wooden nickels. I didn't feel right correcting John Golden, so... And, and he gets a pass, too, considering he's mastered probably 100,000 records in his lifetime. Yeah, he's the master of mastering. <laughs> the thing the thing that um, when I heard him say that, I, I don't know whether this is why, but he was talking about Crosby, Stills, Nash, right? Right. And they there's a very, very famous CSN bootleg. And... Uh, uh, on an old bootleg series called the Wooden Nickel Bootleg Series. That's the connection I made in my head for some strange reason, but I doubt that's what was going on. Hey, that's two weeks in a row we've talked about Crosby, Stills, and Nash, by the way. Yeah. I'm a fan. Big fan. Now, we've got the buzzer howl, Paul Ticks of Time, Double Nickels, here comes Project Mersh at SST34. Go back to episode 34 for a deep dive on that. We go into a lot more detail there. But this is really, you know, Project Mersh is, it's kind of a tongue-in-cheek attempt at going commercial. That's the Mersh. Um, trying to write songs with more of a traditional song structure and fade-outs. Carducci was really on the heels of Double Nickels, pushing the guys to see if we can kind of ride that wave. However... Project Mersh didn't sell nearly as much as Double Nickels. That, this one was recorded at Total Access in February 85. Uh, Mike Lardy was the engineer, Brent. And do you remember what band Mike Lardy was from? Great White. There you go. Um, <laughs> produced by Joe Carducci and Ethan James. Um, you know what I was thinking t- uh, about also with uh, John's interview coming up here? The guys at SST must have just been drooling all over the amazing stories that John Golden could tell, hey? Because oh, they were sure. such classic classic rock fans, yeah, hey? For sure. Oh, my gosh. Like, Carducci in particular was probably just soaking it all in every chance he could get. <laughs> On Project Mersh, we've got Crane again making a guest appearance. And I, I forgot to mention, but Crane, of course, from Tragic Comedy has that new Alliance record. This also, speaking of classic rock uh, the Project Mersh EP has also got a cover of the Steppenwolf song, Hey Lottie Mama, which was for Carducci. Apparently, Steppenwolf was Joe's favorite band. Um, well, they, and this covered record, all, they covered CCR. Who else? BOC, of course. Total Van Halen. Cl- total classic rock fans. Yeah, Van Halen, right? Ain't talking about love. Yeah, I think that was more tongue-in-cheek, though. <laughs> what makes you say that? <laughs> Then this EP, Project Mersh, has also got that amazing artwork on the cover. And it's D Boone artwork 
depicting a meeting where three exhausted record label executives are trying to figure out how to get their band to be famous. And it has that caption in the bottom there where it says, I got it. We'll have them write hit songs. And uh, so they're totally, they're totally self-aware, I would say, when they're doing Project Mersh. And, and don't get me wrong, Brent. Project Mersh and Buzzer Howell are great 12-inchers. Um, and they do work really well on this compilation. I, I was digging it just as much as last week. But I'm just, I guess, I was thinking about last week. Those are start to finish. Like, there's no, there's no chaff. There's no chaff on the punchline and punchline and what makes a man start fires. There's a bit of chaff on Buzzer Howell and Project Merch for me. I don't know if you if you can see oh, what I'm saying. Oh, for sure. Yeah, there is for sure. Uh, and but the the songs that I like on here are just songs that I really like. So that's yeah, what, yeah. that's what it is for me. I totally acknowledge that I'm in the minority. But it's yeah, just... but it's a, we've mentioned that a ton of times on the show though. It it is a time and place thing. Like there are particular albums by bands that are my favorite and it's everyone's least favorite, but that's the one that I could afford that day at the record store when I was a teenager and I wore it out and it was, it was years later that I got the rest of their catalog, but that it's like how many people like ACDC fly on the wall? Just you. You're the only one. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly, man. But Hey, I still love it. All right. Well, should we sink the pink here? Oh, excellent. Let's do that and uh, toss it over to John. Um, I can't wait to hear it again. All right, so we're joined on the podcast today by John Golden. John, thanks for being on the show. No problem, Brent. Uh, Glad to be here. Okay, I'm wondering if you can take me back to the very start, John, the start of your career, or maybe even sooner. I'd like to hear about your teenage, I think it was a teenage band, with just yeah. an awesome name that I love, the Uncalled well, Fuller. <laughs> the, yeah, it goes back uh, quite a ways. Um, you know, my, my both of my parents uh, were musical. From when I was maybe four or five years old, I started to sing with them. Mm-hmm. And uh, they, my mom played piano. My dad was in the barbershop or quartet. <laughs> and, you know, in the barbershop shopper choir in uh, east liverpool ohio where i was born okay and uh they they were uh you know always musical always you know music was around me the whole time so it was very natural for me my mom and dad actually sang as a duet for people's weddings they found out oh there's a good duet so we can hire them for and you know who knows what it would be then eight dollars or ten dollars for to come in and sing three or four songs for our wedding right. and so they did that they did that for a while but uh yeah i was exposed to music very early on and uh i never heard her play but my my dad's mother my grandmother golden actually played piano for the silent movies in oh. East Liverpool, mm-hmm. which is quite something, you know, when yeah. you think about it. She sat down in front at the at the upright piano and watched the film and just played music, you know. Yeah. So there's there's some background there that goes goes back a ways, but uh, I early on 
um, was listening to the Everly Brothers and and some of the very old mid to late fifties records over a local AM radio station. And of course, you know, electric guitar was just starting to come out around the fifties, fifty two in that that area. And uh, I don't know, I just fell in love with the sound and and I picked up a uh, six string harmony Catalina. Uh, guitar that was in a pawn shop in East Liverpool, and I would have been probably ten, mm. around ten. I wasn't a teenager yet. I know that. Uh, uh, ten or eleven. You're getting started before the other band from Liverpool, even. Uh, <laughs> well, yeah. I'm, yeah. But uh, so so I've uh, collected pop bottles at two cents a piece, and the bigger bottles were a nickel a piece. And I collected those until I got $17.50 to go to this pawn shop and buy that guitar that was in the window. Right. And so that was my first six-string guitar. So that was the beginning, and I just, you know, uh, I got a couple of books and looked at them, but I pretty much played by ear and learned by ear. And uh, so I did that until we, uh, the family ended up moving to a town north of East Liverpool called Columbiana. It's just south of Youngstown, which is in Mahoning County, different place. But um, it's, it's a little town that was a phenomenal place to grow up in. Uh, it just, just was awesome. And I was there in eighth grade up through my senior year all the way. And then during that time... Uh, is when I met a friend of mine named John Heron, who was in my class that um, got interested in me playing guitar, and he took guitar lessons at a local uh, music store, and then ended up uh, uh, being my best friend, and still is, actually, and, uh, uh, you know, being the, the lead guitar player uh, and rhythm guitar player right. in the band called the Uncalled Four. Uh, the name came from my dad uh, when we started to rehearse together, and and began to think of well, we we got to create a name, you know. Uh, I went to him and I said, Dad, you know, we're, we're having a lot of trouble coming up with a name, and so he said, Well, you know, he was always kind of a joker, and it came up with one-liners that are, were pretty amazing. But he, he he said, Well, why don't you call yourself the Uncalled Four? <laughs> and, you know, you can then you can be uncalled for, or you can be the uncalled for. So I thought, oh, that's pretty catchy. That's a good one. And then he said, I remember a barbershop group that used to be called the uncalled for. And I go, <laughs> well, they're not going to complain about a rock band, you know, right. now. So uh, that was the name. And then uh, it progressed to Johnny and the uncalled for. And that came about because we started to spread out playing a lot of gigs in the general, that general Youngstown area. And one of the places we became fairly popular at was an amusement park that since has burned to the ground uh, in Youngstown called Idora Park. And uh, they had a giant uh, wooden dance hall, basically, that just about every artist of any significant nature, Count Basie, you name it, they've all been there. Mm-hmm. And it was a very, very awesome um, facility. So uh, we played there quite a bit, and it was a union stage. So the Youngstown Union required five musicians. 
so so when when we were called to play there, the uh, music uh, director of Idor said, "Oh, well, you guys have to get somebody else to play with you, because it's a five-man stage." Right. So we hired a saxophone player to basically look good. <laughs> now we did a few songs that he could play sax in, but for the most part, he he just was you know, a tambourine player, essentially. And uh, uh, he became the fifth man. So all at once, you couldn't have the Uncalled Four be five people. Right. So that's when Johnny and the Uncalled Four started. And so that that got that going. But yeah, we, we, uh, we went quite a ways, uh, you know, into the local area and were beginning to branch out. We did play a lot of fraternities and sororities because people that were going to our dances when they were in high school, junior and senior years, and we were seniors and had been out of school a year or two, 64, 65, they were now in college. Mm-hmm. And they went, oh, let's have this this group come over and play for our, you know, fraternity party or whatever. And so we started to branch out and, and played in, in Cleveland, uh, Baldwin-Wallace, uh, several different major uh, colleges, and we're beginning to pick up momentum there. You know, we would have probably continued to go uh, even bigger, but I got drafted in 1965, and uh, I just, there was no way I could get out of it. (laughs) Not that I particularly felt I wanted to get out of it, (laughs) but it was right in the middle of a time when I had just signed a personal, personally, I had just signed a record contract with Warner Brothers. Oh, really? Four months before that draft notice came in, yeah. Yeah. And I I actually had a single that came out. Uh, It's, somebody's posted it on YouTube. Uh, It's it's there, not not me, you know, visually, but the record's spinning and the the sound is there. If you want to consider it sound, it's pretty bad. (laughs) But... uh, it was a record called Hoopie, H-O-O-P-I-E. And it started to get airplay in uh, quite a few major markets. I actually remember uh, sitting in my little studio I had in Ohio in my parents' attic. And uh, I had put a fairly large antenna up on the chimney so I could get radio stations late at night that were far away. Right. So I actually have recordings of WBZ in Boston playing that record <laughs> and it's pretty pretty interesting you know what they talk up they talk about it and what have you and then they play the record and then they talk out of the record at the end of it but so it started to get airplay uh, there was some a uh, couple of tv shows i did i did a show called upbeat in cleveland a uh, host named don webster and you can also access uh, upbeat on uh, on the internet and get a little synopsis on on that show, right. which became syndicated. But the day I was on and pantomimed the record, uh, Len Barry was one of the guests, and he did one two three. I don't know if you remember that record or not. Yeah, I, I know it. Yeah. Uh, the other person that was also there at the same performance and taping was um, uh, Joe Tex. <laughs> and he had a record called Skinny Legs and All at that point in time, which was a big hit for him. The show was syndicated, world uh, not worldwide, but nationally, not long after I was on. So I don't know how far it went, but I've never been able to get a copy of that performance. It oh, would have been bad. fun to have it, you know, but 
those were all videoed and then tapes were sent to a lot of stations for broadcast. They didn't have the satellite stuff going like they do now. Uh, so, you know, they just made copies of it. And a week later, that show would show up in Amarillo or, you know, right. <laughs> some other t- state and town uh, broadcast. So that was an interesting time. But uh, within like three or four weeks after I was on Upbeat and another show in Youngstown uh, broadcast, that was a live dance show, you know, similar to the Dick Clark thing, only much, much smaller. I was drafted, and mm-hmm. it was like, you know, I knew I was going to be, because I got my induction notice, but which means you're going to get the final letter here real soon. So when that happened, it was like, okay, you know, and uh, I, I was sent to uh, the local, the uh, county uh, headquarters, which at that t- time was Lisbon, Ohio, where all the drafted people from that county went together and ended up uh, going to Cleveland for induction. Then from there, we were sent to our individual places. And everybody, it was a crazy time because that was the Vietnam War was going on big time. Right. And all of us knew we were going to Vietnam. <laughs> we all knew that. And uh, so out of my particular group, uh, which was about... 120 or so the guy that was in charge of our group that day who was like an army you know private second class or whatever he said well you know we've had the biggest draft call uh, and and it's it's actually more than what the army can handle uh so he said there's going to be two percent i think he said two or four percent two percent of you will go to the Marines, and 2% of you will go to the Navy, and that will offset the, you know, the, the, the overdraft. The volume, yeah. So they drafted more people than they had places to put them, basically, as right. another government move, um, which I thought was a little funny. Uh, so, interestingly enough, um, they put what we call our billet number in, in a hat and drew them out, and my number was one that, that went to the Navy. And uh, everybody else pretty much went to Fort Benning for paratrooper training. And, of course, from there they go to wherever they're needed. But myself and I think it was three other guys from our county were given uh, what they call a chit, C-H-I-T, that let us go have a decent meal at a restaurant in Cleveland. And then at a particular hour uh, later, two hours or so later, we were supposed to be out front and get the bus. And that took us to the airport, and that took us a plane that went to Great Lakes Naval Training Center in uh, uh, Illinois. So that's where we, I, ha- I went for basic training for nine weeks. And when I got out of basic training, there, I went home for one week over Christmas. And, uh, and that was a, a nice thing, but I had no idea where it was going to be. So I got my, I got my assignment in the mail, and it said, you are hereby you know, ordered to go to the Underwater Sound Lab in New London, Connecticut. <laughs> and I went, oh, great. I'm not a very good swimmer. Now I got to go to an underwater lab, you know, uh, which turned out to be the actual laboratory that sonar was devised. Okay. So it was an interesting thing, uh, and, and I went there for, for the remainder after boot camp of two years. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and as a draftee, when I got out, because I, I was drafted, uh, I didn't have to attend any reserve meetings. But while I was in there, I had a lot of time to think about my career and my life. And I did write songs while I was in the service, and I would go home once a month and record them in my little studio that I had in my attic in Ohio. Right. And I did some demos uh, that uh, I thought were pretty pretty good for particular different artists. And I would go then on a on a on a weekend pass. Uh, I would I would get off and go to New York City on the train and and actually go into record companies and play my demos, you know, right. not trying to be the artist, but but possibly selling the songs. So uh, you know, I was still dabbling in music and and liked it, but once again, I had a, a significant time to uh, to weigh my life and decide, you know, what I really wanted to do. And I kind of got to the point where I thought, you know. Artists have rough life. Yeah. <laughs> they live in hotels. They live in out of a suitcase, and they they're moving all the time. It's not. I mean, you know, even if you're a, a major artist, it's still pretty pressing on you to tour all the time. I mean, Eric tells me all the time that, you know, sometimes he'll he'll play four or five nights in a row, and they'll be in five different states. So uh, you know, it, it, it can be taxing. But anyway, so I decided. You know, I'll write to Warners and I'll get a release out of the contract. Right. Uh, so I did. It was a three-year contract, uh, and I still would have had a year after I got out of the service to to do what I want. And they had the right to renew it, but they said, "No, yeah, under the circumstances, sure. Sorry to lose, you know, your interest, but we understand." And they let me go. So when I got out of the service, then I ended up marrying the 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 lady that I had. Uh, dated and I had known her since eighth grade basically okay and so my wife and I packed up our wedding gifts in a 6440 Econoline van <laughs> basically <laughs> was all what we had right. and moved to California there was a time period when I was out of out of the service from for about nine months um, I worked at a studio in Pittsburgh that we I had taken the band there and recorded demos uh, and it was called Gateway Recording. And mm-hmm. Gateway Recording was the studio that uh, uh, Louis Armstrong did MAME there. Uh, Lou Christie did all of his first hits there. Okay. Uh, Two Faces Have I, you know, How Many Teardrops. Uh, and then the Vogues did their hits there, Five O'Clock World, You're the One, um, before they hit it really big. And interestingly enough, the Vogue's producer, when they signed to, to Warner Brothers, was Dick Glasser, who was the guy that signed me to Warner's. Uh-huh. <laughs> it goes around in circles. Right. There's even more behind the scenes than that, but I won't, I won't get into that with you. So I had some, some good training there at Gateway. When we recorded there with the band, they had two-track. So you would record on two channels, and the engineer would mix pretty much the band low frequencies on one channel and then the higher things, the guitars, and maybe a, a vocal on the opposing channel. And then they would transfer that sound from one machine to another, to a whole different piece of tape. And that's where you did the overdub. Okay. So if you wanted to sing harmony, you sang over top of what you had done the first time. So right. there was not a lot of room for, for error. Uh, if you made a mistake, you could go back one one time, you know. Right. 
not as bad as Les Paul's way of recording was, but similar, uh, except tape. And when I went to work there, uh, about three or four years later, they had a, a half-inch four-track Scully tape recorder. So it's like, whoa, this is cool. Because in my little studio at home in the attic, I just had two track. And I would overdub from one track to the other on the same piece of tape, bounce back and forth. Of course, the generations would get pretty scary after about uh, two times you, the noise was bad and it would, uh, you know, it wasn't a professional setup by any means, but I got some decent recordings out of it. So I worked at Pittsburgh on four track, half inch, and you still had to think really ahead of the game because you had to get an idea of what the record was going to be and how many overdubs you needed because you always had to leave a track open to transfer everything to, right. or you go to a two track and then bounce it all back across, you know, similar to what the Beatles did with, with eight track. So, uh, you know, it was an interesting time, but when I went to, uh, I apply for work out here, uh, in California, we went to Hollywood and, uh, there's Dick Glasser's brother, Teddy Glasser, Actually, I, I had known him from Canton, Ohio. That's another story. But uh, I had known him and his brothers uh, from Canton. And he pretty much said, you know, I'll make a few phone calls, but I can't, I can't guarantee you anything. You've got to come out here. So we drove out. And I think we arrived on a Thursday. And Friday I went to see uh, Ted. He was working for MCA's Publishing on Vine Street across from Capitol. And uh, I, I went in to see him, and he made a few phone calls, and he said, you know, go down here to United Western, and, and then he said, I've got another one over at Wally Hyder recording. So go down and see Wally. He knows me. I said, okay, fine. So I went to United Western, looked around there. Of course, that was where the Beach Boys, and oh, I mean, I can't even tell you how many hits have been made at that facility. Right. Uh, phenomenal, phenomenal history. Um, it's still there, but it's it's... I called something else now. I'm not exactly sure what the name of it is, but but it's still there. And uh, but anyway, so they didn't need anybody, but they, they they'll let me know, you know. So okay, fine. And I went up to Wally's and uh, I met Wally, and and he was I don't know if you know much about Wally Hyder, but he was a historic remote engineer. Uh, he was he's an attorney, music music attorney from. Um, Portland, Oregon, originally, played piano. So he said, well, you know, I don't need anybody right now, but uh, uh, there's a guy that works up in our dub room, and that's when you when you cut a dub, it's literally a lacquer disc, because at that point in time, cassettes hadn't taken hold. So if you wanted to play your music for anybody as a demo, you got a dub made. So there was this little room up above the studio's, uh, in Hollywood that uh, had a, a Neumann Lays and a, a tape player, and they had a significant account of publishing companies that used them to make the dubs. So Screen Gems, uh, which is uh, Columbia, and, and Irving Almo, which is A&M, and Sunbury Dunbar, which was RCA at that point in time, they had all three of those accounts. So at any moment, one of the secretaries would get a call and say, oh, we pull tape 27 and make me three copies of I Won't Last a Day Without You, you know, for for uh, uh, Irving Elmo, you know, A&M. And so uh, I did that for a while, and pretty soon the original guy that was doing that actually quit. 
so Wally knew he was going to quit. He wasn't happy with the job. And uh, so I, I took over there. So it was about maybe three weeks. And uh, one day I got a, uh, a call that said, come downstairs. We want you to meet Bones Howe. So I went, oh, crap, Bones Howe. You know, he, he's done so many hits. I love for years the sound of his record. So, so I actually... Uh, you know, went downstairs and there's Bones Howe. I'd never seen him. I didn't know him, but I certainly knew his name. I mean, Engineer, The Turtles, uh, Beach Boys, uh, you know, uh, he did Peter Gunn, you know, right. I mean, the original. Mancini, just all these amazing, amazing records. And so it was like, wow, this is cool. And so he said, you know, I need somebody to be my second. So that Wally said, hey, do whatever Bones wants, you know. So I worked behind Bones Howell uh, at Wally Hyder Recording, specifically Studio 3, uh, which was a notorious studio. I'll tell you a little more about Studio 3 in a moment. Uh, that ended up, uh, you know, backing, uh, running the machines and setting the mics up and actually doing some hand claps and other things for Bones um, with the Fifth Dimension. Okay. All the Fifth Dimension records were done there after Up, Up, and Away. I didn't work on that record, had nothing to do with it. But I did second all the sessions that were after that, um, including, you know, Wedding Bell Blues and Aquarius uh, with the Wrecking Crew in there playing. I set all those mics up. Bones, uh, you know, would, would sit at the console and, and he would move the faders and do the engineering. And I ran all the tape machines and kept all the logs. And we become very, very good friends. Uh, and, and he trusted me more than I'd like to admit. And, uh, uh, you know, I, I respected his talent. And I also respected his mannerisms of work. I got to sit behind somebody who had already done it and been there and was successful. And he's a very intelligent guy, started his own publishing company and actually hired writers to write songs for the fifth dimension and then he would publish them <laughs> and not only did he get royalties for being the producer but he got royalties for being the publisher of the song right and and, and that's why you know he lives in santa barbara now he was in <laughs> montecito but he he said it was just too much for him there so and he, he lived next to oprah winfrey and who knows uh, who many other people live in that vicinity still but but uh, he still lives up there in santa barbara and uh a great guy but that was really an interesting situation for a little guy from ohio you know i i just to this day i'm grateful for for him taking an interest in me and giving me the basis he didn't particularly if i asked something he'd answer but mainly i observed because right. i didn't want to bother him you know and so i was very observant and learned a lot from him by observing and there were some things that I did for him that he had never had anybody else do that it was technical stuff that he he really liked, that I took a significant interest in, in the way he worked and what have you. So that was really a good thing. One of the writers, and I'll, I'll jump off onto this just for a second, one of the writers that he hired to write songs for him was Warren Zevon. Okay. <laughs> who later became Werewolves of London guy, right. you know, yep. who's since passed away. But uh, I did a solo album for Warren uh, 
when he was still writing songs for Mr. Bones Productions and their publishing company. And, uh, uh, you know, so I did a solo album. It was released on Imperial Records, uh, but it was just, for the most part, Warren and myself. He, he he had a couple cuts. He would hire a drummer to come in, but he played everything, you know, and right. I had engineered everything. Uh, so, it, you know, it, it kind of went within a circle there, but uh, it was a phenomenal experience. I was there at Wally's probably close to four years before I branched off into mastering. It was through working at Wally Hyder's that I got phone call to be involved in mastering by a guy named Bob McLeod, who owned artisan sound recorders in Hollywood. And uh, a, a short story to that is that I also seconded for Crosby, Stills & Nash first album uh, at Wally Hyder's Studio 3. Oh, wow. And um, that's a whole day's discussion in itself. I was <laughs> one of three engineers that worked at Wally's that would go to be a second in back of an engineer named Bill Halverson, who was the chief engineer at Wally's at that point in time. Uh, there was Rick Pekonen, uh Larry Cox, and myself. There were the three of us. Uh, there was one other guy that was there for a little while, but he moved on and went somewhere else. But mainly Larry and, and Rick and myself were the three seconds that rotated behind Bill Halverson during the recording of the Crosby, Stills & Nash first album. Wow. And uh, it was a phenomenal, uh, that was an experience in itself. I mean, it's just, you'd pick any song and listen to a playback, you knew it was a hit. There's nothing like that on the radio, nothing. And uh, the guys were all artists and, and you know, well-known in their own right. Uh, this was before Neil joined them. Completely. Uh, so there's just the three guys, and uh, it was always exciting because you could never tell what those sessions were going to be. You know, I'd ask Bill. I say, "Okay, Bill, are we doing vocals?" He said, "Yeah, set up two mics, and give me three sets. You know, three sets of headphones, and and uh, we're going to be doing overdubs tonight." That's what Steven says. So I'm going, "Oh, okay." So <laughs> I'd get in there. And would be set up, and no one would be there yet. And it was like seven o'clock at night. They like to work evenings and and late. And so, um, it, you know, seven thirty rolls around, quarter to eight, the phone rings. As David Crosby he says, "Oh yeah, Bill." He says, uh, "We changed our mind. We're going to do tracking tonight." <laughs> it was like, "What? <laughs> Holy crap!" So you know, I, I would tear down the, the bikes, move around. The cartridge company would bring in the the drum set for you know, and and they would do tracking on something. And, you know, from what I remember of the Crosby, Stills, and Nash, and then I'll get off of this subject, uh, they used 165 rolls of 2-inch 16-track tape. Holy smokes. And that was when 16-track was just coming around. Uh, the, the machine they used originally was a custom-built 16-track uh, built by a guy named Tom Hidley, who built all the Westlake rooms. Um, he was an engineer at a studio called TTG, maintenance engineer, and he built up a two-inch prototype out of an old Ampex 300 deck, totally custom, the heads, the whole thing, and it was uh, that was the machine that was used to record Crosby, Stills & Nash's first album on. So it was phenomenal. Everybody knew the stuff was a major hit. Yeah. But it was touch and go because you never knew when 
they were going to, they'd get all the way to the mix. They'd, they'd have the stereo mix done. And David would say, uh, no, I, I just got something wrong with it. I don't like it, you know. And, and then we'd, we'd end up tracking and doing tracks all over again. And David didn't like, he didn't like using tape over. So when they would do a, a track, if, there, if, if it didn't quite feel right or whatever, there's no way you, you erase that and go, go over it and use the tape again. You had to use a new roll of tape. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so that, that accumulated quite a, quite a few rolls of tape. But um, one last story about that record is that they were in there, I don't know, doing some vocals or something one afternoon, late afternoon. And the phone rang in the studio, and the secretary says, "Yeah, there, there, uh, there's there's uh, Erdogan's, uh, you know, uh, secretary's on the phone." Atlantic so, Records. Yep. Yeah, exactly. Yep. So, what happened was uh, Bill answered the phone, and and he says, "Oh yeah, oh, okay." And so he handed the phone to Stephen or one of the other guys I don't know, and and uh, said, "Yeah, Ahmed is on his way." And he's going to be out front of the studio in like within the next 20 or 30 minutes. He just wants to drop by and, and say hello to you guys. <laughs> so sure enough, man, the, the knock, knock, knock on the door. And there was the limo driver. He pulled up right in front of a fire, a fire hydrant. I'll never forget it. Uh, right on the corner of Selman, Kawanga in Hollywood. And, and uh, there was somebody with him who I would assume was a bodyguard. Uh, but there, here comes Ahmed Erdogan in and, and I, I was just like back in the corner, you know. I just stayed stayed out of the scene completely. But uh, Bill had queued up some mixes of Sweet Judy Blue Eyes and Wooden Ships and a couple other things, you know. And so Bill says, "Yeah, play some of this stuff." And so we did. And I think he was in Ahmed was in there maybe maybe fifteen minutes at the most. Mm-hmm. And he said, "Oh." Good work, boys. Keep up, the, keep up the good work, and turned around and left. <laughs> I mean, it was it was amazing. You know, here's here's the the guy that signed them to to Atlantic, uh, just coming in to kind of check on where where the money was going. Right. But you know, there was there was no budget. I mean, everybody knew that was a huge huge hit, and I can't remember if that was the first time he'd ever heard any playback of anything that they were doing. But once he heard that, it was like. You know, whatever you want to do, make it right, make it the way you want it, and we'll put it out there. And, right. of course, the rest is history. Phenomenal, phenomenal situation. But, yeah, interesting time. No kidding. <laughs> I'll let you ask me something else now. Sorry. Fast-forwarding, John, to your time at K-Disc, how did you make the transition into more of a, focusing more on, like, indie, independent music? Yeah, okay. Um, that... Uh, what happened was when I left Wally Hyders, I went to a place called Artisan and I worked for Bob McLeod at Artisan doing a zillion records for about three years. I got a phone call one time, one night, because I was working nights. Nothing's much changed since right. then. Uh, and, and it was from a guy named Kent Duncan, D-U-N-C-A-N, who had a brand new studio out in Burbank called Ken Dunn. And Larry Cox, who was one of the engineers that worked at Wally Hyders, had since produced a hit record for a group called Climax, 
the song was called Precious and Few. And that, that turned out to be a really big hit. Well, Larry was using uh, Kendon as a uh, mastering and editing place uh, because Kent had made him some some phenomenal offer and said, you know, we'll take care of you, whatever. So Larry was out there doing editing and what have you. I, when I got a phone call from Kent's secretary and said, you know, Larry says you're a good guy and we need a mastering engineer out here. Can you work for us? And in a nutshell, I pretty much said no because <laughs> I, I was happy at Artisan. Right. But interestingly right. enough, the, Kent, Kent said, you know, I'll, I'll match what you're, you're making at Artisan and I'll go extra on top of that. And so I ended up taking the job at Kendon Recorders in Burbank. And I worked there about seven years. And I was doing all of my, the major artists were there. It was phenomenal. It was just an incredible place. You never knew who you were going to run into in the hallway. They had three complete major big recording studios and two complete double-lathe mastering rooms. And I worked in one. And that was all major artist stuff. Right. And then after, it was about six or so, six and a half years, things started to change a little bit. I felt a need to leave. And so I gave Kent a year's notice. And he wanted me to buy the equipment in the room. And I I actually almost did. But uh, that deal fell through. Not my fault, but it fell through. And uh, I ended up leaving at a year later as I had promised. And so somebody said, oh, there's this new place in Hollywood called K-Disc. <clears throat> so I went to K-Disc, and interestingly enough, I knew the guy who was the acting manager there named Bill Leitner. And uh, so I, I, I went to Bill, and I, I said, yeah, I, you know, I just left Kendon, and uh, I just wanted to know if you got anything going down here. And he said, well, he said, yeah, you know, what what do you what do you want to do, or how do you want to work it out? He said, we could really use a manager here. So I ended up taking that job, and that ended up 12 years at K-Disc. <laughs> <laughs> and um, it was a tough beginning because they had not done hardly any major work at all, and I had just come from a place that all they did was major work. Right. So um, it was tough because one of the first things I had to do was fire the secretary as the manager. I had to fire her because she didn't have a lick of sense of, as to what was professional and relating to major labels and what have you. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I let her go and hired a, a lady that was an engineer's wife who had an insight on the business. And she put it all into perspective and, and cracked the whip. And, and all at once we were doing, you know, major artists again uh so it was a pretty pretty interesting time you know i i i I didn't do as much major artist stuff at at k-disc as i did at kendon because the business was changing and when i when i started at k-disc within about the first i want to say two or three weeks that i was there and remember this is before digital was even happening this is vinyl right there was this engineer that came in and uh he was from sst or from you know working for sst his name was spot so 
Spot came in with a with an analog tape, and it, it was, uh, I think I, it was a TV party. I'm not sure what single it was, but it was, you know, a black flag thing. And so um, I I played that all the way through, and then I played the B side all the way through, and and uh, then I rewound it, and I said, well, what do you think? He says, yeah, it sounds great. And I went, okay. And so I cut the masters, and I was packing them up and putting them away, and and. He said, you know what, this is kind of strange, but he said, I went to another place in town, and I'm not going to get into names here, but uh, they're on Vine Street. <laughs> and he said, uh, you know, that engineer played the, the intro, then he skipped to the end, and then he cut the record. And I said, well, how, how did he know what was between the beginning and the ending of the, of the, of the tape, you know? Uh, he said, well, I, I was amazed. He said, you play the whole thing all the way through. And I said, well, I don't know how else you can tune in to someone's recording unless you listen to the whole thing. So he was impressed, and the word kind of got out at that point that, wow, you know, there's somebody over there at KDISC that pays attention and likes uh, his job and and, uh, cares as much for the punk music or the independent scene as, as he does for for doing other, you know, stuff, the, the major major label stuff. So that was the, I believe, the beginning of the independent scenario at K-Disc. And that snowballed into a giant situation that was almost out of my control completely. <laughs> uh, it was it was just unbelievable. I, I was doing... SST work every Tuesday and Thursday was reserved for SST. They had so much stuff. Greg was putting out so many recordings that um, it, I had to reserve those two days a week, or I'd never get it done for them. You right. know, and and it wasn't specifically uh, hard work because the the tapes were very well done. For the most part, they didn't want you to mess with anything. They liked the way it was recorded. They liked the raw sound of the way things were. Uh, and so, you know, it made my job a lot easier rather than trying to reinvent what they would bring in. So, uh, you know, I, I kind of lucked out with that. Right. At the same time, the entire music industry was doing an upturn upside down <laughs> where a lot of major artists were fed up with major labels and they were beginning to leave and they were signing with independence and they were putting stuff out on their own. And so, you know, it, it was one of those situations. I happened to get in a facility at the right time at the right place when it was all taking form. Right. And, uh, it was, it was an amazing, uh, experience. And, Along those same lines with the SST thing, you know, a lot of the bands tour together, even on different labels. So, you know, the Black Flag and, and, and the Minutemen and other people would be out on tour and, and they'd say, oh, yeah, you got to go to John, go to Joe to John at, at K-Disc, you know. And so I picked up K Records, Calvin Johnson's label. Yep. Uh, I picked up uh, Touch and Go out of Chicago, yeah. uh, I, uh, Drag City. Then there was, um, uh, what's the other one? Uh, of course, Sub Pop. Yeah. Sub Pop, I was doing their work. And then I, uh, there was another one, uh, two or three in, in San Francisco that I Look was out. doing work for. Yeah, Look mm -hmm. Out, exactly. 
so you know it, it just snowballed and uh, I had literally cardboard boxes in the production room that I would go to to pick out what I wanted to do that night <laughs> it was insane and if it wasn't a Tuesday or a Thursday I was expected to do some sub pop stuff and some lookout stuff and maybe some drag city stuff and um so all these boxes were categorized with the different record labels and work orders were attached to them and what have you. So it was a perpetual thing. I, I would do three albums a day. Wow. It was insane. <laughs> and uh, sometimes even more. And then when digital came out with the 1630, the original uh, format for, for actually it was a 1600 and then it went to a 1610, that was the converter that converted analog information to digital information. When that system came out, I redid most of the SST catalog again. <laughs> so I had to go back and redo all of it uh, to, to bring them out as, as CDs. Right. And interestingly enough, that was the early days of digital, and there were no such thing as CDRs. No one made CDRs. And so you would transfer the audio from the analog tape up through the console to the, to the digital recorder, and assemble the CD, so to speak, and then you would send that. The only place making discs originally was, I think it was Sony, maybe Philips in Japan. I can't remember right offhand the, the company. But anyway, it was it, they had the only uh, glass mastering system that would actually create the so-called master that then got electroplated and, and then made a stamper and, and uh, injection mold for the CDs. So I was doing this work, and no one would ever hear this, hear anything, any bit of it, until they got the CD pressings from Japan. Wow, <laughs> it was incredible. I mean, sometimes somebody would say, "Well, you know, could you make me a cassette of it?" You know, so I would. But uh, it, you know, when you think back at those times, oh my God. What about when cassettes started coming out? Did you have to change what you're doing in the mastering process for cassettes? Uh, well, actually, cassettes were quite popular. Um, when I was at Artisan, that started to take hold. And then when I went to Kenan, it was even more prominent. We were making cassette masters, so to speak, where you break the source up into two equal parts as much as you can. We were even making, at, at Kenan, I remember making uh, eight-track masters for the cartridges. Right. <laughs> That was a lot of fun. But yeah, the cassettes we had uh, at K-Disc, I think they had something like two banks. I remember they were in roll-around cabinets. And uh, we had like two banks of, of Tascam cassette decks. And I think there were six decks in each one. So one was roll They were both roll-around. So if you got somebody that said, I need 20 cassettes of this, we'd roll one unit into the other one, and, and they could make a lot at one time. Uh, it took a lot of coordination. <laughs> you know? But uh, but the basically, uh, yeah, they, they were pretty popular and convenient. That's right. the whole thing, convenience. But um, those were, were pretty much the reference until CDRs became available. And even when they did, K-Disc never was able to or didn't embrace a system that would make CDRs. Uh, we had so few requests for them hmm. that we would make the 1630 and send it down, down on sunset to Bernie Grunman's place because he had a computer system that would burn a CDR. 
and I think he charged us like four hundred dollars for a CDR. Wow. It was three fifty or four hundred, and we would literally pass it on to our client for the same money because we felt so guilty about how expensive <laughs> it was. Uh, but Bernie would, you know, that he had somebody that would that would do that, hmm. but. Um, there was never the standalone CD burners until much, much later. Right. I remember b- buying my first CD burner. I think it was a Marantz in probably 1995. Yeah. Uh, when I bought that at, at my specific, the first place I started up in Newberry Park, I, I opened that room with just April and myself in 94 or 92, 93, somewhere in that area. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> Uh, that was a great thing to be able to burn a CDR on myself because up till then, I would make 1630s backups of all the projects I was doing. And depending on what it was, sometimes I'd make a DAT. But uh, DATs were 16-bit. There was no high-resolution stuff going on. In fact, the 1630 was 16-bit. Right. So that was before 24-bit was even talked about, uh, at least publicly. So, yeah, uh, cassettes uh, were very popular, and I understand there is somewhat of a return of cassettes right now. People (laughs) are liking them. I haven't had that request to make them yet, but we still have a couple Tascam decks here. We could, but uh, when it comes to multiple replication, I just don't get into that at all. It takes way too much time. Uh, I usually will send them to somebody that that's what they do for business, right. you know, I'll send a yeah. digital copy and say, or I'll make a CDR and say, here, send it to these guys or whatever, you know. You mentioned you have boxes and boxes of recordings waiting to be mastered. By this point, are they just sending you the tapes and leaving you to it? Or are you working with the engineer? Or are you working with producer, the artist? Or are you just doing it on your own? Um, well, for the most part, I was on my own. Uh, there were certain artists that wanted to hear something to listen to before we went ahead and made the master. And we would do what we call either a cassette or you would make uh, a lacquer reference because, remember, much of the early days of independent stuff was before CDs were even thought about. There was no digital stuff. So... um, you know, certain artists, uh, Screaming Trees, whatever, they would request a reference. So we would do, I would do the run-through, which means you play the tape from beginning to end, usually several times, and make minor adjustments. Um, some adjustments were made according to what was requested, but some adjustments were made because we had to make it fit on a record. Right. <laughs> so... So there, there are, there's even to this day, I still deal with people that just don't understand the limitations of, of vinyl. It's even harder today because with everybody recording digitally, it, it, they don't understand it's all done in real time. So you, you know, you can't just make a disc and send it to them. I mean, it, it, it takes it's played in real time, and uh, it's a very fragile medium. Yeah. But um, so we would make a, a dub or a reference copy. We would document everything you did. It was all written out longhand. Today, I have storage that I, I can click digitally and actually store about 90% of the settings uh, and that are 100% retrievable and recreatable instantly. So it's a lot easier now than it used to be. But yeah, right. we had actual log sheets that were on 
oh, it had to be 14-inch long cardstock at K-Disc that you listed the the song title, uh, you know, the left and right level, the any EQ that you did, and every time you used a different EQ, because we had several different kinds of stuff there, you, you would have to log that in, mm-hmm. and then you would have to repeat the process once the reference disc was approved. Right. So it's like mixing. It's basically like mixing the record. Yeah. 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 And, uh, and so, you know, it's actually even more strenuous than mixing because when you're mixing, if you goof up, you just rewind the tape and when there were tape to tape days, okay. Or, or you, you just keep going. But with, when you're cutting the disc, if you make a mistake, you got to start over and guess where you have to start at the beginning. So when you say cutting the disc, you mean like making the lacquer? Yeah, except you do one. You do one that's on a, a size disc that will play on a regular record player. Now remember that the actual master lacquers that are used for manufacturing multiple records, that lacquer is a uh, on a 14 inch blank, and they give you the extra inch on each side to do test cuts you have to set the depth according to the pitch so if you're cutting 400 grooves in in one inch of space the depth would be 2.5 mil or 2.5 thousandths of an inch across (laughs) Hmm. so that's all set on the individual blanks with a microscope and there's no place to do that if the disc is 12 inches of diameter because the music starts on, on the edge Okay, so we have to use what we call a, a, a depth check disc from the same batch when we're doing a 12-inch and hope that the thickness is the same. <laughs> <laughs> and then we, we cut the ref. Um, and if, if you make a mistake, you know, you go back and do it all over again from the beginning. And I have to tell you, I've done some records, probably more than I'd like to admit, that they had me doing a full fade at the very end of the last song on the side. And, you know, when the tape is moving at 30 IPS off the analog tape player, by the time it comes off the reel, you're already too late with the fader. You know, yeah. you you got to go by the timer. So it was all done by time on the Studer tape recorder. So you would lo- on your log sheet, you would actually log in what time to start the fade, start at 12.22, and be out by... 1232 you know because if you were out by 1234 the tape would cut off at the end because it wasn't faded all the way if you went out at 1230 you didn't get that last little lick that the guitar player wanted to hear you know (laughs) it was like i can't win for losing you know (laughs) but the fact of the matter is uh you know it was always uh precarious when you had these kinds of moves during audio one of the most complicated records I ever cut that I can remember uh, was was at Kendon was a Jean-Luc Ponte solo violin type guy mm-hmm. uh, yep. Jean-Luc Ponte album. It was called Enigmatic. Enigmatic. I know Oceans. it. Yep. Yep. Okay. Yep. So when I cut that thing, uh, Larry Hirsch, the engineer, was having me do things that I mean I couldn't. I had to use three or four sheets of paper to write it all down. And there were full fades on that record, and there were also situations where there were EQ changes during the music that were, and, and level bumps, 
which means you bring the level either up or down during a certain few bars or passages, uh, all the way through the whole record, both sides. It was crazy. It was insanity. And I was like on the edge of the seat all the time. It was a lot of sweat, but I got through it. But uh, there there are times then that was very complicated and and trying, you know, but that was part of the challenge, you know. I, I remember at Artisan uh, having some of the same issues, and at one point in time, I actually got so frustrated, I grabbed a 14-inch lacquer and threw it. <laughs> and uh, it it goes, you can imagine a 14-inch aluminum disc with lacquer on it. If you get hit with that, you're in trouble. Right. Uh, I was the only one there, and it ricocheted off of a, off of a, uh, a, a wooden uh, shelf, and I ended up feeling so guilty. I had to get the paint out and paint the <laughs> paint the shelf because it had purple uh, lacquer staying all over it from from being hit with a lacquer. But that you know th- those were interesting times. These days, if you get a complicated project, uh, which still happens, you literally go one song at a time, then reassemble it because okay. you can do it digitally and not not lose hardly anything, if anything. And generally speaking, the t- type of changes you need to do actually will warrant a generation because it'll turn out better than it did if you didn't do that. So, uh, you know, that that's a great, inc- great convenience. We still, I still do it off a lot of cutting in real time, uh, but it's from digital source, of course, and most of it's from, from somebody, you know, it's already been mastered either by myself uh, or someone else. We do a fair amount of cutting for labels that have their mastering done somewhere else. I see. And that's okay. I don't, that's fine. There are a lot more mastering facilities today than there ever were. A, a tremendous amount. There's at least 50 that I know of that are ordering lacquers from the MDC group. Mm. So <laughs> that's, that's 50 studios that are cutting records, not counting the ones that don't have a lathe, you know. So uh, it's very competitive, and, and I'm, I'm really happy to be able to, uh, you know, do my little part here and keep above water and enjoy the work, and which I do, you know, always fun. I have to ask you, John, about the runoff grooves. We talk about them always on our podcast. Yeah. Is that you putting them in there? How does that uh, work? Well, the, the, you mean the, the, the scribe message? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, well, uh, I have answered somebody else in the past three weeks, sent me an email and said, you know, I see this on this disc and whatever. Um, oh, I, I remember what it was. It was a Poco album. Okay. And there was, there was a guy that wrote to me, and he, I guess, it does some work with Discogs. And he said something about there's a scribe on the B side of the Poco album that says this. And do I remember doing that? Right. And I said, no, I don't. But then again, that was many years ago. So anyway, it turned out that it was Mike Flicker, who was the producer of Heart, who I did a lot of work for at Kendon. Uh, Mike Flicker produced the Poco album. I cut it. And Mike had had me scribe, I believe it's on the B-side, something about... Love Slave of Studio D. I think that's what it was. Well, there was no Studio D at at at, uh, at Kendon, 
there was, uh, you know, uh, there was a Studio D, but he, it wasn't referring to that. Uh, Kendon, it, it stood for Duncan. That was the very last room he, he built. Uh, phenomenal facility, just phenomenal. Uh, Quincy Jones would buy it three to four months at a time to record all the acts that he recorded, <laughs> including Michael Jackson stuff. But uh, so I put two and two together. I went, wait, Studio D, let me think about that. And the Poco was recorded at the Village in West L.A., so I'm going to look at the Village website. So I did that, and there it is, Studio D. <laughs> so I emailed back this guy, and I said, I, I really think that this message came from Mike Flicker, that they had worked so long and so hard on this record that it was a love slave of Studio D. And ultimately what it came about was, apparently... There was a lady engineer that worked there, whether she was a full engineer or whether she was, uh, uh, you know, a tape op person. <laughs> um, she actually uh, took that nickname. So <laughs> that's 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 the story about the scribe. But but no, uh, I I will scribe things that are requested, but I never put my own stuff in there. I, okay. I will put the matrix number. And, and basically, I explained to this person that wrote in to me, this, what I'm going to tell you is that the record isn't mine, and I'm not the artist, and, and you know, I, the, the most I will ever go is to put my initials on a record. And usually, I put the, indicate the facility. So uh, at Artisan, we had a, a, a kind of a, a orb circle with, the two, with an A in the middle. Mm-hmm. And that stood for Artisan. Uh, very few projects at Artisan I would put my initials on. But at Kendon, where I started to really get involved in stuff, I started to initial stuff because I figured, well, you know, people were asking for me and they probably like the idea that I worked on the record. So I'll go ahead and put my initials in. Anymore, I, I kind of shy away from that. I just put the golden stamp on the records and, and let it go. I've kind of had the spotlight for a long time, and I, I just, I, you know, I, I don't really need to brag about anything. And my son, J.J., uh, is, has developed an incredible uh, mastering skills and, and his own clients, basically. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I, I don't like to, you know, if I run something down from the, from the beginning and I do the CD version and then I cut the vinyl, I will usually put my name or my initials JG on the record, but uh, early on, yeah, it was it was kind of an important part of of what I did. But no, I never scribe anything that I want on there. Sometimes I put things on the records that client requests that I, I'm not happy about. Yeah. But once again, um, it's their record, and uh, you know, uh, I, I just never felt right about making comments about. Uh, uh, or any kind of, you know, gesture uh, about someone else's, because it's all, it could be taken the wrong way. Mm-hmm. And especially uh, with with the Internet and stuff now, it's like, you know, you never know what, <laughs> how it's all going to come back at you, you know. So. Okay, here's a tough question for you, maybe. Uh, okay. Considering the fact that you've mastered God knows how many. Do you have any idea how many albums? Uh, well, yes. In a nutshell, yeah. Um, I calculated up roughly when when I started business, 
our own business here in in uh, I can't even remember the year number. I want to say I want to say it was '92, but somewhere in that area, '92, '93. Because I know I left K Disc uh, and had a, uh, I took about a month off, and then we April and I, uh, my oldest daughter, opened the business. That question came up, so I did a rough calculation, and I go, okay, I've been doing this, working at at K Disc. Uh, and then Kendon, and then Artisan, and working five days a week. Forget the weekends. And there was many, many weekends I went in. Many weekends I would go in and, and do cutting because I there would be fewer people there, and I could concentrate better and get more work done. So I figured if I only did uh, something like one album a day, I would have done 10,000 records wow. in, in that amount of time. <laughs> and since then, 15, there's 25 more years. Now, I don't do a CD or an album every day. I will start on one and maybe finish it the next day. It really kind of depends on, on the project uh, because some days it's like, oh, yeah, you know, this is what this one needs, boom, boom, boom. But rarely and occasionally, I I will get a project that's like really left field. Sometimes I go, I'll listen to it all the way through without doing anything to it. I, I do that. That's one of my practices that I like to do. Is I just sit at one monitor, conservative monitor level, monitor level and listen from beginning to end. And that's the only way I think any mastering engineer should ever approach a project because if you start turning knobs right away, then you have to turn the knobs for everything else. Right. And it, it, it influences it. Where I like to get the overall picture, I like to get an idea of what, you know, what the, the artist had in mind and get, get a concept. And you wouldn't believe by just sitting back and listening, uh, you can begin to draw lines right through song to song to song. Okay, this one needs this. This one's too low. This one's too loud. What happened to this one? What happened to the vocal on this one? You know, and it just keeps going back and forth like that. And and eventually, at some point, you start to tune into it and you start to make adjustments. And then you do it again and making those adjustments. And then you go back and and do it again. And pretty soon you go, yep, that's as good as it's going to get, or it's better than it's going to get. And uh, and we're going to go ahead with it. So uh, that's that's the way I work. But uh, a lot of uh, you know, projects that are very, very strange. I remember having, years ago, there was a harp and a vocal. Solo harp and vocal. And then I had another one that was solo harp and piano. And uh, I had never done one of those before. I've done a lot of classical cutting, but that, that type of recording is pretty much the way it is. You know, they put a, three or four mics over an orchestra and then they push record, you know. But uh, when you get into these left field things, you kind of like you've got to sit back and think about it. And some of the uh, independent projects that are recorded at, at less than professional facilities, and I'm not pointing out any of them. I'm just saying that there's a lot of things that go on that people are totally unaware of right. that audibly are apparent to me. And I look at that as as. It, from an artistic viewpoint, because I do play guitar, <laughs> and I've had some music training in my life, not nothing of any major significance, but uh, 
you know, I've been listening to stuff for a long, long time, so I have a pretty broad view of how things should fall into place and what instrument I'm listening to and other other issues with that. But the way things are put together, sometimes the artist is thinking only of, let's just say if it's a singer and they wrote the song, right? they're going, they're going to hear the lyrics in their mind as they sing it. But when they go down to mix it, oh, my vocal's too loud. My vocal's too far up front. Pull it back. You know, it's because they already know what they're going to sing right. or say as it goes down. They already know that. So it's kind of this embedded thing. And when I'll listen to it, I go, man, I can't understand these lyrics. What happened here? Or there'll be what I call throwaway lines where there'll be a lyric and then the artist turned their head away from the mic to even a little amount. And part of the word will be gone or, or something will be dipped down there. You know, it's like, oh, man, am I the only one that hears this stuff? You know, <laughs> so it's challenging. It's rewarding when I can be successful and people say, man, it sounds great. I love it. That's the most appreciative I could get, you know, for 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 doing the work that I do. That's I I. Uh, Many, many times we, uh, yep, we love it, we're done, you know, and it goes on. Other people say, wow, I don't know how you did this, but it's, it's just amazing. I, I, you know. I had another time, uh, another occasion along these lines where there was a record that came in from San Diego area. This is probably 10 years ago. And uh, it, the vocal was so buried, it was ridiculous, but so was everything else in the mid-range. So I was able to lift up the frequencies in that area. And the guy that sent it in said, I can't listen to this anymore. My wife, she hates it. She just wants to get it out. We're done with it. So I listened to it, and I made some pretty pretty monumental changes to it. Sent him a reference copy on a CDR. And he called me back, and he said, I have no idea what you did, but my wife loves the record again. <laughs> <laughs> so I thought, well, maybe maybe I struck a number there, you know. <laughs> so uh, it's that kind of feedback that that is, you know, rewarding to a large degree. That yeah. uh, that I'm 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 still able to to make people happy and and make good music. So um, all right, well, here's the tough question I have for you. Then you have mastered some amazing records on SST. Does anything stand mm-hmm. out for you? I could name a few of them for you if you like, if it helps at all. Well, you know, they they were there are records that that were really great records, uh, and there were some other stuff that Greg put out that I kind of wondered why he was putting it out. Yep. Uh, nothing personal, but but uh, at one point I thought, wow, I mean, what 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 record rack do you put this in? Because it wasn't, you know, it didn't fit any genre of anything they were doing. Right. And uh, so those records kind of were like, uh, okay. Uh, but, you know, the the uh, uh, the Minutemen stuff, the Wooden Nickel album, um, which was mastered twice, by the way, um, the the all the Black Flag stuff was, was quite historic. It was very, to some degree, different than stuff I had ever worked on before. Right. But like right. once I got in tune with what they were up to and doing it, it became part of the job. I mean, you know, it was I, I didn't mind it at all. And that's how 
a lot of other labels and, and artists kind of caught on to what we're doing here. So, But yeah, you have anything specific that I could remember to talk about? You did records by Dinosaur Jr., The, the Minutemen yeah. you mentioned, The Meat Puppet, Sonic Youth, Firehose. Yep. Um, you did the yeah. Opal record. So many amazing, yep. amazing albums. Well, I, you know, I can't specifically take credit for a lot of that because my job is, is depending on, on an awful lot of things. But mainly my job is just to, to capture what they have created and get it to the medium that goes out to the world. Right. And sometimes that's fairly easy to do. Sometimes it's fairly complicated to do. Uh, but, you know, I, I never felt like... I have never actually felt like I need to re-engineer something. Uh, if it was that bad, I usually make a phone call. And most of that comes from the fact that people are unaware of a specific thing, as I said earlier. Uh, so many records these days are done in sub subnormal <laughs> studios, if studios at all. Right. Uh, a lot of them are done over speakers that... Uh, only go down to a specific low frequency around maybe 80 or, or, or even uh, 70 cycles. And, the, and below that, it's not audible because the, the speakers can't reproduce that frequency. So I'll get these, I'll get these recordings in here done digitally, which is, is as flat as a ruler. Digital is totally non-forgiving, and it's a very, very flat format. Uh, tape, by the same token, has a roll-off on the low end. It's an automatic roll-off, and it's in the subsonic area. You can still get a lot of low end on there, but it never used to be the same issue as it is now. Is that, well, now meaning the last 15 or year, so years where, you know, it's the kind of thing where if you take an equalizer and, and the artist says, oh, I, I, want, I want, or the bass player says, I want more, more of my bass. So they take a shelving equalizer at 100 cycles and turn it up and keep going, and finally the bass starts to sound like the, the bass player wants it. But what they're unaware of is they just boosted 20 or 30 cycles, 8 dB or 10 dB. And that's a subsonic area that is, it's totally screws up recordings. Right. Uh, in fact, it'll cause them to, to distort if you don't filter off some of that subsonic stuff. I, I get a lot of stuff where microphones are bumped and people don't even know about it. You know, <laughs> there'll be a really low stuff that goes on there. And we have some software that we can actually tame that down. Sometimes we can get rid of all of it. Hmm. But um, I'm aware of that. And, you know, in a, in a vinyl record, that's devastation. I right. mean, you, you get a skip right away. So I have to be aware of all that kind of stuff. And But mainly, yeah, it's, it's people listening on... Uh, uh, using headphones to mix or speakers that are uh, bookshelf type speakers that are somewhat inefficient. It's not that they can't do the mix there. They can, but you've got to be aware of the stuff that those speakers don't reproduce. Right. And, and so I, I usually will trim things up a little bit, uh, getting projects that uh, I'm, I'll make a note. I'll be able to tell. I say, Oh, this was mixed on near, near-field bookshelves, you know, like, because of the amount of low end on it. Um, but at the same time, um, we have other issues going on technically where people will 
record their own stuff, and they'll buy uh, a, uh, an inexpensive uh, condenser microphone, and they're great. These these Chinese microphones are actually quite good. I have two of them, and uh, they're they're actually phenomenal for the money. Uh, you can get a, you know the frequency response is very very flat, very good, but if you use only one mic or two mics to record your whole album with, they tend to have a specific characteristic that builds up in the recording. Mm -hmm. So if there's a little bump at a specific frequency, let's just say I'm just going to throw a number out there now. If you've got a little frequency bump at 300, that's considered what they call the warm range, which I don't really care for, but the warm range uh, tends to, uh, you know... uh, build up if you use that same microphone on an acoustic guitar then you do the vocals then you maybe do another guitar or keyboard then you put background vocals on you use the same mic all at once you've got this you know 18 db or extra (laughs) of of around 300 cycles that you really got to dip down some Uh, there are issues with with that too but it's nothing that usually can't be dealt with uh, but yeah, the the uh, SST stuff and and a lot of the independent records in the old days were were quite well done. Actually, um, to this day, you know some of that stuff that was done uh, uh, on the Minuteman is just, I mean, it's incredible. The stuff sounds amazing. It was uh, yeah. done at Radio Tokyo. Yes, uh, it's just phenomenal. I do know there was occasion an occasion where Mike, what. Um, I was at K, uh, K-Disc, and Mike uh, remixed the Wooden Nickel album because there were some things that he wanted to fix and do something different. But uh, at that point in time, the studio, I don't think Radio Tokyo was still existing or something. I, I don't know, it had closed or whatever anyway. Uh, so he mixed it with a different engineer in a different studio. That he was not familiar with the speakers. Mm-hmm. The original recording was quarter quarter inch fifteen, uh, done at Radio Tokyo, fifteen IPS quarter inch. When they brought this remix of the Wooden Nichols album, and remember the Wooden Nichols album was already mastered and out there, right? Uh, it was already done. Uh, but when Mike brought it in, you know, it was going to be. I believe that that's what we were going to make the CD from. Uh, and up till then, it had just been the the vinyl version. Don't quote me on that, but I think that's why we, he remixed it. But anyway, so the, it came in on half-inch 30 IPS, which is pretty much Rolls-Royce of the analog world. So I thread it up, and it sounded like there was a packing blanket over the speakers. I mean, it was very dull. didn't have any of the life that the original recording had in. And the, the engineer and Mike and, and some other people were there, and I, I really didn't, you know, get funny about it. I just kind of sat there and did my thing, and and talk to them and whatever. And uh, we we ended up using that. And actually, I think I cut lacquers on it. And, and I think there was a CD that came out. Mm-hmm. But what happened was that Mike eventually realized what had gone on. And I think he had feedback from a lot of people that, that liked the original record. Right. And um, they pulled it. They just said, we're not pressing any more of these or doing any more. We're going to use the original version. And I think I went back to the original tape and used that to redo the, the, the C, to make the CDs from. Hmm. But, uh, you know, it's an un, it was an unfortunate situation. But as, as an engineer, uh, 
I'm not the producer, you know, so it's not really my job to tell them, oh, I don't like your new mix, right. <laughs> you know, uh, because for all I know, they want it like that. Yeah. But sometimes it has to go full circle before it starts to make sense. Right. Uh, in that case, that was just the primary point that uh, unfortunately had to happen to, to get back to base one. But there there are a lot of things. I, I do some reissue stuff, uh, cutting of, of old projects and uh, some CD work, but most of the CD work involves forensic stuff, denoising, deticking, depopping, and we just we try to share, you know, stay away from that because it just eats up so much time, and it's also very hard on your hearing. Right. It's incredibly hard to detick a record, uh, even with the the computer programs that are there. Uh, after a few hours of that, you're 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 ready to go home. I mean, it's like you either can't hear it anymore, or you don't want to hear it anymore. You know, you know, in the process of, of doing reissues, I've had people tell me, I, oh, you know, you, can you do this and can you do this? And I'm going, well, why do you want to change history? Right. Don't change history, you know. And that is exactly what was trying to happen with, with the Wooden Nichols record. Yeah. Is that uh, people get used to hearing things the way they are. And even if there's some sort of a sonic improvement, you've got to be really careful about uh, you know, t- turning the knobs and changing the way things sound. Uh, simply because the, what you remember, whether it be better or not, is is what you learned to like. Right. <laughs> and, and so, you know... Uh, it's true. It's very Reissues true. Reissues are tricky business. Yeah, yeah, they're tricky business. And you have to really be careful. If you so. if a band puts out a bad reissue or a bad remix of an album, they'll hear about it for sure. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> I've done some that I, that I know are not good. Yeah. I've done some that I really wish they would have just left it the way it was, you know. Yeah. But, you know, I, I came from a different place in a different time when, when you didn't have the option to mess with stuff as much. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, I, you know... Recording where you you go in the studio, you played the instruments, and you went in the booth and listened to it. And if you didn't like it, you did it over <laughs> the whole thing. Yeah. And you know, anymore it's like, oh, we do twenty five tracks of vocals and eighteen or twenty five tracks of each guitar, and and I've talked to engineers, and I that have been here, and I'm saying I have no idea how you keep track of everything. <laughs> and and even if you could keep track of everything, by the time you get done with the rest of the songs and you go to mix it, how do you remember what you wanted to use? <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like, and, and many of them don't. Yeah. They really don't remember why they did for 30 tracks of guitars <laughs> or whatever, or even five. And uh, many times they'll, I, I, I talked to an engineer that remixed some stuff that was done digitally, uh, multi-track digitally, and there were the engineer that recorded it didn't keep a log sheet on what was where, and there was something like forty tracks of stuff, and he had to go through one track at a time and try to identify <laughs> what it was, and and what position it had in the recording, 
because a lot of times they'll do what they call comps, where there'll be a guitar line that'll go so far, and then they'll pick up another one that went another two notes, and then they go back to the other one and what have you, and they com- compile those on another track. So you can actually hear, you know, five or six guitar parts, but there were only snippets of those used to end up <laughs> on the on the one that the producer or the artist approved. Right. And and it's just a nightmare when you get into that kind of stuff. So I look back at the old analog days and, and the simplicity of recording as a phenomenal training ground. And that's what I came up through. Yeah. Uh, because you have the ability at that point to understand that, hey, if, if you don't like it, we do it over again. You know, <laughs> you didn't like the guitar solo? No problem. We'll just do another take, or two more, or three more, or four more. But usually at some point, you become aware that the simplicity of that is really, really a a credible benefit. So when you have a band that can perform pretty much live, and that's another issue I'll get to here for a second, is when you perform as a group, there's something magic that occurs where if you do one part at a time, yeah. you kind of end up with a solo album of some yeah, sort. For sure. I've been there and done both. And, yeah. and believe me, uh, there's stuff that happens when, it, when, a, when a group of people get together. I saw it with the Wrecking Crew, with the Fifth Dimension. Yeah. I saw it with, with them, you know, the Wrecking Crew out there with the charts in front of them, all written out what they're supposed to play. And they would run that chart down two or three times, and then they knew the song. And that's when they started to get away from the, what was written on the paper. <laughs> and that became the magic, you yeah. know. And they, they played so many, you know, you've seen the movie. Yep. They played so yep. many gigs together that they knew what they were going to do before they even took the guitar out of the case, you know. <laughs> it was a phenomenal, yeah. phenomenal vibe with those people. But that exists within many, many, many artists and bands. But unfortunately, when you piecemeal it, uh, you kind of lose that natural vibe. Yeah, I've been doing some records that have been done all at once, or close to all at once, and in a in a room, and, and it's you could feel the energy. It's a whole yeah. different thing. Now, a lot of artists can't do that. They yeah. they just can't do that, you know. And I understand that it's not for everybody, but uh, yeah. I'm just saying that the records that are made, uh, you know, with that in that manner, seem to be unique. Yeah, it's and, very and true. The vibe and, the, and the feel. John, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me tonight. I really appreciate it. No problem, Brad. Glad I could be there. All right. Well, what can I tell you? Like, truly fascinating for me. Uh, the history, I, I get the sense that John has got a million more stories just like all of those and can go on and on. And I would... I would love to hear it. The thing, though, that stuck out for me, not just the history and all of the experience, like his legendary involvement in the music business and also the independent music business in particular, um, just a key figure. But the thing that stuck out to me in his comments, it's that piece where he was talking about how he used to listen to the whole recording from start to finish before he would master. And to to me, what stuck out is he really respected the craft and the artistry of every musician and really took it serious and he was an artist himself when he was taking these pieces of tape that were just thrown at him by all these crazy bands and like 
really giving them their due when he was getting them ready to go out to maybe become a very famous record, maybe find its way to the cutout bin. Yeah. Yeah, no, for sure. He, he's a music fan. You can tell. Here's a few things. So, I mean, tee up his discogs if you want to get your mind blown. He mastered or cut lacquers for Zappa, Beefheart, Bongo Fury. A bunch of records by like huge bands like Ario Speedwagon, Heart, Iggy Pop. He mastered Rocky Erickson's The Evil One. Ooh. Like it's crazy. Early 80s, you start seeing some indie bands creep into his discogs. The Oil Tasters on Thermidor. Ooh, that's a great record. Yep. Some frontier bands like Three O'Clock. A bunch of bands on that independent project records like Savage Savage Republic. Jerry's Kids, Is This My World? The Welcome to Venice comp, a bunch of Bemis Brain, New Underground, Ralph Records stuff. And then in 1984, it seems like when the floodgates opened. Just on SST, DC3, Minutemen, Three-Way Tie, Overkill, Up on the Sun, Kill Tunes, Alternative, Slovenly, Saccharine Trust, Minute Flag, Sonic Youth, Angst, Gone, Swa, St. Vitus, Treacherous Jaywalkers, a zillion other indie bands like Camper Van Beethoven, Naked Prey, Dose, Red Cross, Green River, Thin White Rope, Faith No More, Operation Ivy, Circle Jerks, Primus, Rollins Band, Big Boys, Mr. T Experience, Poison Idea. It just goes on and on and on. It's insane. And it goes on like that for years. Yeah. Uh, a few points of interest for the interview. He mentions his son-in-law, Eric. That's Eric Levy, who is the keyboardist for the band Night Ranger. One of the most interesting things... I found was when he talks about mastering for CDs and having to send the master to Japan to get a CDR cut and the most of the labels not hearing the mastering job at all until they get the CDR back. Yeah. That they probably paid (laughs) $500 for. Yeah, that is back in the day, right? When it was just Philips and whatnot. And, you know, there were, there were five CDs at the store for the first few years. Yeah. (laughs) My favorite part of the interview, because I'm a big fan, as you are, Ryan, of 60s music and all the the 60s comps and stuff. Oh, yeah. uh, Is when he's talking about his band, The Uncalled For, which is just the best name. And it's like U-N-C-A-L-L-E-D. Uncalled For. F-O-U-R. Coincidentally, Wick Records just released a single. Wick, of course, is the garage rock arm of Daptone Records. It's released under the name Johnny's Uncalled For. The A-side is called Please Say, which has come out on a number of 60s comps. The B-side is called Daydream. The flip to their debut 7-inch, which was a, a pretty barnstorming version of Shortnam Bread. Here's what it says on the, on the Wick website. The A-side is a moody angst-ridden slice of teen rock that was ahead of the curve with regards to the proverbial garage rock explosion of 1966. In a time when every garage in the country had some kind of racket blaring out of it, Johnny's Uncalled For were, were one of the few groups whose undeniable craft elevated them beyond the cement confines of their suburban home and into the year 2020 for a whole new generation of rabid rock fans to devour. A must for fans of Nuggets, Back from the Grave, Pebbles, Teenage Shutdown. He also mentions a different single called 
Hoopy, which came out on Warner Brothers, and it's credited to Johnny Golden. You can find that on YouTube, and it's worth worth a listen for sure. It's John Golden singing in both of these bands. Yeah. You want to talk about the tracks, Ryan? History Lesson, Part 2. Can you remember? You always ask me if I can remember. Can you remember what was our ballot result for Buzzer Howell? I, I'm guessing it was Little Man, but which one was it? Little Man. Yeah. And then for Project Mersh, was it Take Our Test? No, King of the Hill. Oh, really? Yeah. That would have been me. Okay. We've got some good ones to go then. Yeah, that would have been me. And for my first bells, by the way, it was if Reagan played disco. Also probably would have been me. Ah. Yeah. Here's an interesting thing I found, Ryan. I have the SST press kit for three-way tie for last. Again, these things are really hard to find. The cool thing about them is, although, like, for example, this one is for three-way tie, a lot of what they put in the press press kits are articles from newspapers or reviews and it's always of the previous record so there's a few yes. double nickels reviews but most of the reviews in there are for project Mersh. but here's the cool thing in the kind of bio at the start of it they say the next minutemen record will be a 12 inch 45 rpm four song Mersh funk ep called no mysteries what that's what it says. What? I've never heard that mentioned anywhere else. Wow. All I've ever heard about is the three dudes, six sides, three studio, three live. Yeah. Which ended up being ballot result, right? Yeah. 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 I even checked like in the Craig Avera book and Watt doesn't mention anything about this four song Mersh Funk EP called No Mysteries. Whoa. Yeah, we should mention that too. Um, we we would have mentioned it in the prior episodes that cover these tracks like SST 16 and 34 and 32. But um, everyone should always check out when you're talking about the Minutemen or anything Pedro, Craig Barra's amazing book, A Wailing of a Town. Um, always a good excuse to crack this open too when a Minutemen episode comes on. Yeah, it's a great book. Oh, yeah. I just wrote down a few quick thoughts, Ryan, since we've been through these these tracks already. The Buzzer Howell stuff, interesting. The first half is kind of all Watt songs, and the second half is, is Boone. I wonder if that was an intentional as far as the sequencing goes. Probably not. Self-referenced, a great opener. Burned out wreck, spotted on the beach. Symbol for my life. Love that lyric. Cut, I've always liked that song. I was digging it. Yeah. So hard this week. Yeah. It's so groovy. Yep. Crane on recorder. There's obviously some filler jams on here, like Dreams Are Free, Motherfucker, and the Toe Jam. Yep. I felt like a gringo is a great Watt song sung by D. Boone, though. Ton of white guy guilt. That's my problem. Love the, love the lyrics. The product written by D. Boone. Good stuff. Little Man, of course, is awesome. Project Mersh. The Cheerleader, great D. Boone track. King of the Hill for me is a top 10 Minutemen song. Uh, Do you like King of the Hill better than Take Our Test? Yeah. You but must, I, must I hey, if, that, I, if it was your ballot result last time. I do, but I like Take Our Test. You know, I'm sure I mentioned this in that episode, but the Forever With You, Forever Without You part 
that just yeah. gives me the feels every time. And Tourspiel is a great song too. Oh, for sure, man. Yeah. That's it. That's all I okay, have to say so about these tracks. What do we want to do here in terms of ballot result? I feel like, you know, if you're you're a bigger fan of these two than I am, then you should do the honors, and uh, that's all good for me. So let's go to the ballot result. Hey, do you want to hear a few reviews first out of this, what people were saying about Project Mersh? Sure, man. Okay, here's one from Robert Hilburn. If you've had a hard time getting a fix on this high-principled but sometimes elusive San Pedro trio, this six-song EP should help bring things into focus. The Minutemen play American music in its broadest sense, employing country, blues, jazz, and punk rock elements and favoring themes that search for the major and minor injustices and deceits that betray the country's ideals. Uh, let's see, here's one that isn't credited. San Pedro's favorite rockers assail their listeners with slabs of manic punk-funk experiments, always socially and politically aware. Their consciences are in the right place, but Boone, bassist Mike Watt, and drummer George Hurley remain faithful to the spirit and drive of their rock godfathers. Project Mersh seems insubstantial compared to the achievements of the Minutemen in the past, but compared to the majority of the slop being currently peddled, this is still a superior record. Here's from an article by Terry Sutton in BAM magazine called Come Mersh, y'all. We had some fun with people's minds, laughs bassist Mike Watt. We used choruses and fade-outs, just trying to get people to think about what is Mersh. People would come up to us in Hollywood and go, oh, just change your package. They think that's all music is, just a matter of marketing. I don't think it's a commercial attempt at all, he adds playfully especially our calling it Project Mersh. I think it's going to make a lot of industry people kind of belligerent. You're not supposed to talk about it, you know? We're all artists. Okay, Ryan, the ballot result. Ballot result. I'm going to throw my hat in real quick for Take Our Test or Tour Spiel this time around. Yeah, my picks were self-referenced, cut, I Felt Like a Gringo, which I love, the product, uh, the cheerleaders... And take our test and tour spiel, but we can go. Yeah. With, we can go with take our test. That's a, that's a classic jam for sure. Oh yeah, great uh, D Boone guitar playing in that one in particular too for me. Yeah, it is good. Awesome, awesome. Thanks, John Golden, for being on the show. Yeah, what an honor. Yeah, truly. Yeah, I have to go now, Ryan, and watch my Voivod live stream that I bought a ticket for. <laughs> don't let me keep you yeah hey ryan what's next week next week brant uh we're going back and we're going to get some chris d action here with sst 140 the divine horseman record snake handler oh i can't wait i love the divine horseman Hey everyone, thanks for listening. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Tumblr, all at Mojack Pod. We post all kinds of info and tons of pictures of the bands and albums we discuss on the show. Our blog is mojackpod.com. Please check it out for some exclusive content. 
If you like what we do and want to support the podcast, the best way to do that is to tell your friends about the show. Subscribing, rating, and reviewing on iTunes is also appreciated. We love hearing your opinions, corrections, and feedback, so feel free to post on our social media sites and send us an email to mojackpod at gmail.com. Thanks again for all the support, and we hope to see you next week.